Hey, everybody, welcome to another edition of Spits and Suds on 105.3 The Fan. Thank you so much for making us DFW's favorite hockey podcast. And we got a good one today, folks. Big time stick tap to our following guest on this Spits and Suds quickie. Frank Provenzano, he spent 17 years in NHL front offices where he personally negotiated. This is amazing. Over 500 player contracts. Started with the Vancouver Canucks. Then he was the assistant GM for the Washington Capitals. Also uh, director of hockey personnel. And then our Dallas Stars. And he was the assistant general manager from 2006 to 2013. He's the pride of St. Saul. Oh, my God. I can't believe I got that wrong. Salt St. Marie. Frank, how are you, buddy? Stu St. Marie. Stu St. Marie. Why did I say? Marty Marie. Turco would. would yes. Would, uh, those are fighting words for Marty. Yes. Get that yes. No, you're absolutely correct. Did you grow <laughs> up with Marty? Because that's his hometown as well. Uh, I was just a little older than Marty. My younger brother uh, did grow up with Marty, played minor hockey with Marty, same grade. Um, you know, it's, it is a relatively small town. Uh, 10 months of winter, two months of bad hockey type deal. You know, your typical Canadian small town is either a mill or a mine. <laughs> and then a ring. <laughs> but some NHLers came out of there. I mean, Ted Nolan's from there. There's a bunch oh, of yeah. NHLers no, uh, from there. Quite a few uh, uh, NHLers have come out of there. And Kyle Dubas is from there. Um, you know, not just not just players, but front office types because you know in canada you know in the united states you have sports that people are passionate about obviously people are passionate about football here baseball basketball in canada hockey is like the thing um and so it it draws all the best athletes typically that's changing a little bit and so you know that was that was kind of what everyone did (laughs) (laughs) All right, so um, before I get into it, I just wanted to give full disclosure. Frank used to be one of our talk hosts on 105.3 The Fan and did a heck of a job and kind of gave us a management perspective, and we loved having him on. But our midday show, the KNC Masterpiece, which Frank was a part of their program, they said, wow, we're excited, but you got to get a Canadian fun fact out of Frank. Now, I, you, I did not give you time to prepare for a Canadian fun fact. You and Lindy Ruff were the guys that brought the KNC Masterpiece Canadian fun facts. Do you have one off the top of your head? Uh, let's see. Off the top of my head, uh, well, I guess a quiz. What do we call a $2 currency unit in Canada? Ooh. Wow, I've never heard that. What do you call it? It's a coin, and we call it a toonie. Really? So we have $1 coin called a loony because there's a loon on it. And then the $2 coin, because we're super imaginative, we (laughs) call it a toonie. All right. Wow. And is that like the $2 bill here is more of a souvenir? You don't see it much? Do you see many toonies going around? Like, am I flipping toonies to to like the ballet? Really? Yeah. You go to Canada, you end up coming home with a pocket full of, you know, $20 and change because you're toonies and loonies. So there's your fun fact. 
<laughs> I was I was talking to someone the other day, and I said that guy's got good lettuce, and they didn't understand what I was saying. <laughs> I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to get those Canadian terms down. So when I could talk to the Frank Provenzanos, I, f- I feel like I got a little, you know, Canadian blood in me. Yeah, I, I have no, uh, my, my, I have no lettuce. I just have a side salad. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm not far behind my friends. That's what work <laughs> does to us. <laughs> All right. So your dad, I was fascinated reading up on your dad and the influence yeah. that he had not just like with your family, but in the country. I mean, the fact that the prime minister of Canada is talking about your dad and how great of a guy he was. Tell me about your dad, because there is the Carmen Provenzano Memorial Cup, which is Sault Ste. Marie, the Thunderbirds, and the Blind River Beavers. So that's named after your dad. Yeah, and uh, when you drive over the... uh... International Bridge from Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan, into uh, our town. Uh, it, it throws you onto Carmen's Way, which is a street named after him. He was the member of parliament for Sault Ste. Marie um, for a number of years, and uh, which is equivalent to a congressman here. Uh, and, um, you know, he just was real passionate about his community and had a real way with with people. In fact, when when he was in Ottawa and I was with the uh, Capitals. Whenever we'd go into Ottawa, I'd go into uh, watch him in question period because you have basically, it's kind of like if you ever see in, in Britain where they have to answer questions before the House yeah. of Commons. And so he'd look up at me in the ra- in the viewing area and, you know, bang on his, bang on his desk and yell rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> Did he get you into hockey? No, well, I mean, he got got me into hockey in terms of being a hockey dad, um, but uh, he didn't get me into into the management side. But you know, all all of us, I have two brothers. Uh, we all played. My youngest brother played uh, major junior in Canada. I played Canadian college, and I made up for a lack of size with a lack of speed. So I decided maybe management might be the way to go <laughs> for me um, i know but ju- junior b in college i mean if you play college here in america that's big yeah it was college in canada's you know it's not quite as big as here but it was still a good level and and it, it allowed me to 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 play a sport and and then you know we would go and play uh, i went to university uh, in eastern ontario just outside of toronto the closest school would be Syracuse University, but we would go down and play the Cornells and the Colgates uh, in in preseason. You know, much like in college football here, when you'll have uh, you know A and M play uh, Eastern Louisiana State or you know one of those smaller schools, we we were the cannon fodder for some of the uh, some of the bigger schools up there to pad their record before their conference game started. But did your dad, you know? So obviously you get your undergrad and then you're getting your master's from Simon Fraser's university. Did your dad or did you, because uh, in my prep, I saw that you initially thought about going into becoming a doctor, correct? Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, I got a job one summer uh, at a hospital and I was like, yeah, man, everyone's sick. (laughs) 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 So I thought, well, I, I changed my major and went into exercise physiology. And uh, it sort of led from there. 
to be honest, when I finished undergrad, I wanted to go traveling for a year. And uh, so I applied to chiropractic school and uh, business school in, I applied to chiropractic school in Ontario and business school in BC and business school was the only one that would let me defer my acceptance so I can go sort of goof off and travel. So you did. I saw that. Up. Was it New Zealand, Australia? Yeah, I kind of went all over the place. And I think, you know, then even when I was doing my MBA, I, I, I really went out there because I wanted to start skiing. So my whole career was somewhat accidental because, uh, you know, when I was finishing up my MBA, um, the you go to these career nights and it was like, you know, I work for a bank or work for an investment firm and it's kind of sounded boring. And so I count, I sort of called the Canucks up on a whim to see if I can get an in, a name for an internship. And the girl was a temp and it was Lisa Ryan. And we became good friends after that because she ended up working for the Canucks as well. In fact, her husband ended up being the lead guy at the Vancouver Olympics, winter Olympics in 2010, show you how small the hockey world is. Uh, but the girl, she put me through to George McPhee, who was the director of hockey operations, now the president of Las Huge Vegas. Huge name Golden in Hall. NHL, yeah. Yeah. And so uh, I, I was only looking for a name and ended up talking to George. He said, well, can you come in on Monday? <laughs> so, but, so so, you had no idea. You had no, like, I'm, I'm, you just wanted an internship. I literally just wanted a name uh, of someone to send uh, literally a resume to because I was finishing my final semester at, at business school. And I ended up talking to George and going in and I didn't realize at the time, I'm going to date myself here. Um, but they were in the process of more or less digitizing their um, scanner reports and they didn't have anyone, you know, the hockey departments were much, much smaller back then. All, you know, all sports departments were, but hockey in particular and so they had a guy by the name of Dave Nonis, who was on the corporate sales side and who ended up becoming, he wanted to get into the hockey side of things. He ended up being the GM in uh, Toronto uh, for a number of years and being an executive in the NHL for a number of years. But he was sort of spearheading this project. And then when he left to go to, with Brian Burke, to go to the NHL front, uh, to the league office, I'm sorry, they had no one to finish this project. And I went in and, and George brought me downstairs. You know, he said, what do you know about computers? I lied. I said, I know a lot about computers. And uh, he brought me downstairs to Mike Penny, who was the director of scouting. And Mike pointed at a file cabinet and he said, well, we want to take the information that's in there. And then he pointed at his computer and he said, we want to put it in here. <laughs> so wow. that was my first job in hockey. <laughs> wow. Okay. So, like my first job in broadcasting, I remember like there was a sign-up sheet for like collared shirts, but you had to buy them. And I was so proud just to be in radio. I bought like five of them and I, I swear I wore them every day. And I always wondered like, here's young Frank Provenzano, grew up a hockey fan, you know, played in junior B and now you're working for the Vancouver Canucks. Like you have to stay cool, but were you geeking out behind the scenes? Yeah. And, and, you know, back in the day, it was much more formal. Like it was, it was shirt and tie. And I was a student, mm -hmm. you know, living with sharing a, uh, a house with 
five other guys basically because we had no money. So I went and bought two dress shirts and, and uh, I think two ties. And um, it was rough because around trade deadline time, we'd all go in the war room and you had some old school hockey guys like Pat Quinn. I don't know. You must remember oh, Pat. Oh, yeah, legend. Absolutely. Yeah. Big Irishman, you know. Yeah. You, you grew up in Boston. Yep. Played for the Bruins. He was the guy that, you know, put Bobby Orr out. Absolutely. He had that police escort to get him out of the game. Yeah. Um, he was old school and commanded a lot of respect, but he would smoke cigars that were probably as long as my forearm. And it was, it was rough because I only had two dress shirts <laughs> <laughs> and they both smelled like cigars. Oh yeah. <laughs> and then one time I, I was shredding some stuff, probably scouting reports in the shredder and I got my tie caught in there. <laughs> so I was down to one tie and two dress shirts. Wow. And it's so funny because you tell these stories behind the scenes. And then when I see the bio, it's like Frank's responsible for bringing analytics to the Vancouver Canucks. So there you go. Yeah, actually, uh, you know, I went to the IT department, the grad, there was a couple of grad students uh, and uh, the computer science department, I should say. And we literally took an off the shelf uh, Microsoft access, you know, probably doesn't even exist anymore. And we created a uh, customized version of Microsoft Access uh, when we called it Stanley. And it was on the front end, on the user side, we created so the scouts could input, you know, the stuff we needed. And on the back end, we created different uh, user interfaces. We would track arbitration decisions. This is back in 1997. Uh, and... Um, that's kind of how I ended up following George because, you know, I, I sort of by default built that system and was in, in charge of our data and um, then started tracking data. And then one summer I asked George if he needed help with arbitration cases, doing the research. And so I I did the, uh, I think it was the Joseph Baranek. I'm, I'm, I'm pulling some, Nice. Pull some names here. I like here. this. I like this. He's sharp <laughs> on the memory. Uh, Joseph Baranek was our was the arbitration case that year, and I helped him with the with the research. And I think we did well. And so then he's like, every contract negotiation that he had, he asked if I would be interested in doing the prep, and that was right up my alley. I just started doing more and more of that. He got the GM job uh, in Washington, and and uh, took me along. In fact, uh, I was there I, when I first got to Washington. I was living in George's house. Wow! Uh, and at the old Landover Center, if you've ever been there, it was it was in the middle of nowhere. It's actually where there the the quote unquote new uh, Redskins Stadium is. Kind of in the middle of nowhere. And uh, the Canucks were coming to play the Caps, and so. I was staying at George, so I went in his in his room and stole one of his ties because he was at a town at a GM's meeting. But he took an early flight to get back because he wanted to see Vancouver. And we, he gets there about the second period. And I'm sitting there with his tie on. He's like, "Is that my tie?" <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so that's so great. And George McPhee is now the big honcho in Las Vegas. Just won a cup with the uh, Knights. So, okay, so 
he goes to the Caps. Does he leave the Caps, or is he still in the Vancouver offices and says, hey, Frank, come in this conference room, and he tells you, I'm taking the Caps job. Come with me. No, uh, he 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 took the job in Washington, um, and then about about two weeks or three weeks later, he called me and said, uh, "Would you be interested in coming?" Okay. So now, all of a sudden, you're in the nation's capital, and you're making your way up the 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 hockey ladder, so to speak. And you know, not to fast forward, but you know, there is a pretty special player that the Stars, as we tape this, will play tonight. Alex Ovechkin going for yeah. his 15th hundredth point. He's 1499. And that's kind of an interesting time because, you know, you're with Washington and you guys have to, I hate to use the word tank, but is that the correct I mean, you guys want that pick bad. And tell me, like, when did you first learn about Ovechkin? Um, how about the scouting process and just the management in general? Because I, I remember listening to Doug Armstrong ta- tell a story about Colton Pareko, where Colton Pareko was playing at a Canadian tournament and he purposely didn't send any scouts or anyone out there because he didn't want anyone thinking that St. Louis was interested. It was a random tournament in Russia that they sent someone to go see Colton Pareko. So, you know, from, from the Caps perspective, how did you first learn about Alex Ovechkin and the process as far as getting him? Well, I mean, the the cloak and dagger days of international scouting are pretty much by that point even it pretty much ended you know where you're you know when I was in Vancouver like Pavel Bure was there and, and you know like you know secreting these guys out under cover of darkness or having them defect during world junior tournaments you know Alex Ovechkin a generational player like like Alex Ovechkin you know Connor Bedard for yep. example uh Sidney Crosby at the time as well they're on everyone's radar for two or two or three years out. So there's no, there's no surprise. And what was interesting was, you know, we had um, precipitating uh, let's call it a reverse engineering uh, our, our lineup <laughs> to put our, ourselves in the best position to, to get Ovechkin. I can't remember at the time if there was ping pong ball draft or not. Um, we had, uh, you know, we had a relatively new owner in, in Washington, Ted Leonsis, still the owner. Mm-hmm. And uh, when Ted bought the team from uh, Abe Poland, you know, he invested significant resources in it and he wanted to be competitive. And we made the decision two years prior to that to get Yarmer Yager. And, you know, this is at the time, like, not only did we get Yager, but then we did a in fact, I did that deal. It was uh, seven years, eleven million. Hmm. So think about that. Like we were paying eleven million dollars a year to a player in two thousand, and they're just getting back to those numbers now. Hmm. So we had significant money invested in that team, and it just the on ice product just wasn't working. You know, sometimes. Uh, you, you know, you you get the ingredients wrong in your cake and it doesn't rise. And this cake wasn't, it, it was maybe a playoff team, but it just, 
it, it wasn't, you could just tell it's, it's not a team that, that the pieces work right together. And so we had made the, we had had discussions in the summer uh, leading up to that. I think it was 0304. So it would have been the summer of 2003 on, you know, do we strip this team down? Because there were some good pieces on that team. If you look in that year. Yeah. Sergey Gonchar was one. Sergey Gonchar hall of fame. Yarmir Yager hall of fame. We traded at the time, the leading scorer. Think about this. We traded the, the leading scorer in the national hockey league from our team that year, Robert Lang. Hmm. Uh, our cat, we traded our captain, Steve Connor We traded the, um, pro uh, well, no, I was going to say probably still, but obviously not at the time, the career goal scoring leader for the Washington Capitals, Peter Bondra. Some in, names. you know, the space of two or three months. Yeah. And, you know, at the end of the day, it put us in a position to get Alex Ovechkin. And it was franchise altering for that franchise, put them on a path, you know, really to be a, an elite team for arguably 12 years and mm -hmm. a playoff team for what, 15, I don't know whatever, however long Ovechka has been in the league radically changed the profile of the franchise in that city. But when you're making that decision on the front end, it's tough because, you know, it, you're not just, these aren't just players. These are, if you truly build a team culture, then it's not just words, it's relationships. That's what, team culture is when you boil it all down it's the strength of relationships that that you have within the organization and trust you know when when you boil it all down a lot of times culture comes down to trust and there's an implicit trust on the player side that you're going to do everything you can to uh make the team that they're on as competitive as possible so that they have the best chance of team success and individual success because they have a finite career and you don't want to waste years of, of anyone's career. And it's a hard decision to make because there's no guarantee that you're going to end up with Alex Trubisky. You might end up with the second pick mm. in that year's draft or the third. And however good that player is and offhand, I don't know. It's probably not Alex Trubisky. And that's that's old school time when letters were still popular. Did you receive a lot in their office prior to the Ovechkin pick? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, and you know, you talk about letters. Like, you, it's also you're trading letters off your team. I remember we were working. The first trade we made was Steve Konowalchuk, heart and soul guy. Yeah. The reason he he wasn't the most talented, but he had the C on there for a reason because he was like the epitome of just an honest two hundred foot player. And uh, we were working on a trade. George was working on a trade. And sometimes these trades take, you know, longer than you'd like. And so I, we had a game in Ottawa and I, I, he was, he stayed back in, in, in Washington and I got on the plane to go to Dallas. And then I got the call as soon as we landed from George that the trade had been consummated and one, probably one of the hardest things I, I, I did in my career was, was pull Steve Conowalchuk off the plane and tell him that he had been traded. 
uh, to Colorado and that he wasn't joining his teammates on the bus back to the hotel, but there was a, um, there was a, actually, no, it was even worse than that, that he'd been traded. And that once we got to the hotel, we we're going to pull his bag off the bus and get him in a cab and go back to the airport. Hmm. Cause I got the call, um, uh, on the bus ride to the, to the, uh, hotel. And you could just feel the anger and the hurt from his teammates, you know, legitimately. Yeah. Um, because those relationships were meaningful there on that team. It was a close team. And did and, he tell his players on the bus? No, I had to pull them off the bus as they were getting off the bus to go to the hotel and tell okay, them to trade. Okay. Okay. So traded, he, didn't, but, he didn't he didn't interact with the, his teammates after that. Well, and then, you know, he's got like 10 minutes to say goodbye to yeah, everyone. Like yeah. it was it was rough. And uh it's not the ideal way you want it to go down, but some, you know, sometimes you just don't control the, the life cycle of a trade. Hmm. And not sometimes, oftentimes, yeah. you know, because there's another dance partner and, you know, you're finalizing the assets moving back and forth. And sometimes, you know, sometimes there's uh, medical records need to be reviewed. And I, I'm not saying there was in this case, but my, my point being, you know, like it's sort of become fanciful now for people's people to say, we should blow it up. We should tear it down. And there's reasons you don't want to get stuck in the mushy middle. And it was at the end of the day it was the right move for the Washington capitals. Yeah. But the human cost of that is real when you're doing it. And it sucks. It mm -hmm. sucks not having a competitive team because all your work, all your work, all the hours that, the scouts are spending, you're spending is, is in a way almost celebrated when you have a game. Yeah. Because that is the end result of everyone's work product. And to have a team that you are almost engineering to not be competitive, it just goes against everyone's kind of fiber of, of how they even got to the positions that they're in. So, you know, was it the right business decision? Yes there's always the the sense too, that you may be tearing this down for the next person who sits in your chair to reap yeah. the reward. Yeah. And McPhee ends up leaving. And... Well, he didn't leave right away, okay. but he left. Oh, he was there a good long time. Okay. But you decided, right. You took a, yeah. you took a little break and how tough was that? Because here you are, you've worked your way up to a guy who had two ties, <laughs> one shredded. To all of a sudden being the general manager's right hand guy and being really involved in the team and then kind of taking a step back from something that you've worked really hard to achieve. Yeah, I mean, a couple things, I guess. One is uh, I had uh, been, I got engaged to be married during that time. And I knew deep down that the because I had a I was privy, you know, doing the contracts. I was privy not only to do the contracts, but I did the budgets and the budget, the, the numbers, the economics didn't work at that time in the National Hockey League. And I was pretty sure that it was going to be a protracted fight and probably result in the cancellation of the season. And uh, my wife and I were getting married that October. And so I, uh, I just didn't want to have to go in and pretend to have stuff to do for eight months when there's 
just nothing to do, you know? Yeah. And uh, probably goes back to, you know, where we started this and that there's not, there wasn't a lot of advanced planning in my career. Like, <laughs> but that's what I love about you. That's it. Cause so, so you do that, you, you end up getting married and then yeah, and we went traveling. Yeah. Long and short of it is we went traveling more traveling. I mean, people are listening right now and they're super jealous. They're like, all right, this guy has been in like the NHL for years and yet he still gets to go to New Zealand, Australia, I don't know where you went this second time around when you got married. I'm jealous sitting in, like I'm watching you and I'm getting like fired up. Like, well, I, the, the league, uh, everything shut down in September and we were getting married in October. So I had the bright idea that in between that and getting married, I would go climb Kilimanjaro. Jeez. Oh, <laughs> so wow. I, I did that, which my wife, to her credit, probably had some misgivings about, but sure. she let me go. Wow. Uh, and then we uh, we uh, got married and then we went uh, and traveled in South Africa for two months. And then we went and lived in Italy for four months. That's a, absolutely amazing. So then how do you connect with the Dallas Stars? Well, uh, so we came back and I had kind of been kicking around the idea of maybe moving on because as as great as my relationship was with George, I personally felt that maybe people saw me as just George's guy and not my own guy, if that made any sense, probably yeah. even didn't make sense, but that's how I felt. And um, then my dad ended up passing away suddenly going back to my dad. Uh, and so I, uh, I, I went back up to Sault Ste. Marie to help my mom out. Uh, you know, as you mentioned, the, the prime minister uh, came and gave his eulogy. In fact, uh, I, uh, I went up and spoke after him and, you know, the mood obviously at a, especially of a sudden passing is, is heavy. And so my opening line was, I'd like to thank the prime minister for being my opening act. (laughs) (laughs) Good. Uh, You know, lighten it up a little, I guess. But uh, anyway, so I, I decided uh, it was actually one of the harder calls I made uh, was to call George and tell him I didn't think I was going to come back, Hmm. you know, uh, to this day, I mean, George just sent me a, a a picture two days ago or two weeks ago of his first grandchild. You know, like wow. he and I are close to this day. I, they're they're in town here this weekend, probably trying make make it to that game. I mean, I love the guy. Yeah. You know, and and uh, and, and not to, so not to fast forward, Frank, but you know, when he lands in Vegas and's creating that project, was there talks of you maybe going to Vegas? Um, not really, because by that point I was, I was one of the things for me, when you're in any sport, you can't be half in it. And we were established here and, um, you know, it's hard to balance family and a professional sports job. And, uh, I, I just kind of wanted to, I, I, I got to the point in my life. I, outside of being a general manager myself, I had done most everything, you know, outside of title. And I, I just kind of wanted to, I didn't want to not be around for my kids. So, uh, it never really got anything serious. So what was your impression when you came to Dallas and 
you know, settled in, became the assistant general manager. Um, that was an interesting time in Dallas history, as far as hockey. Yeah, well, I loved it here when we first got here. You know, <laughs> uh, it was a team that I was excited to come to because when I was in Washington, we we'd often look at the Dallas Stars and be like, wow, you know, imagine what it'd be like to have money to spend like that. <laughs> yeah. And then I got here and Doug Armstrong brought me in. And then my second year, Doug was let go. And then uh, we had, uh, you know, the process sort of, it started too of, um, you know, the, the, the looking to cut costs because of some, some financial issues in the, in the bigger uh, Hicks sports empire, I guess. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Some of that may have had to do with their acquisition of Liverpool. I'm yeah. not sure. Um, and then, you know, it was the the uh, Brett Hull, Les Jackson uh, dual GM experiment. And then they brought in Joe Nundyke. And then when they brought in Joe Nundyke, almost right after that, we went into a prolonged period of bankruptcy. Yeah, And uh, I don't recommend being a front office executive for a bankrupt team. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that uh, definitely makes sense. What was it like working with Brett Hull? Let's start with him. Well, you know, Brett, Brett's a really, uh, Brett's really intelligent. And he, you know, sometimes I think he, he comes off as really funny, which he is, but he's also really intelligent. He really knows, like he's an intelligent guy and he's a really smart hockey guy. But, you know, the challenge of that, of, of anybody coming in, when you haven't sat in those chairs or worked your way up, is you probably think it's easier than it is because you don't know what you don't know. And uh, you've got no scar tissue built up and then you, you know, you make a few mistakes <laughs> <laughs> and you start to build up some scar tissue and it, it's hard to get rid of those mistakes. Yeah. They kind of hang around. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> a, a, absolutely. And, and I wanted to ask you because, you know, you worked for arguably two of the great Dallas stars of all time, even though they weren't here for long. Like, you know, they always said about Larry bird in, in the NBA, it, you know, it, it's tough sometimes to play for elite athletes because they're expecting the same out of you. And sometimes you can't deliver. Did you ever see that uh, from new and Diker Hull? Uh, I think maybe more uh, Brett in the, in the sense that, you know, when you, when you're at the level, I mean, Brett was a superstar in, in his playing days yeah. and a celebrity around town. And a celebrity around town, you know, and scored the goal, you know, toe in the crease, Stanley Cup, the only Stanley Cup in franchise yep. history. And I think, you know, and he's he's best friends with Wayne Gretzky, who was at the time involved with Arizona. And I think, you know, there's a common thread sometimes, like you you say, this is just my observation, and that players at that level don't understand how players don't understand hmm. if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, I, I was, I was pausing to think about it. Yeah. Yeah. 
it doesn't make sense to players like that. Like why lesser players can't do some things or do some of the things that they do. Yeah. Because they just play the game, you know, for Brett Hall to score that many goals, you see the game differently. Yeah. At a different speed. You just process information. By the way, like, you know, you talk about scouting. My, my experience was the biggest Delta was never, if you go, you know, watch a practice or morning skate, you'll, it'll be harder for the average person to watch that and be like, those are the best players because ever the difference between everyone's skating ability isn't that great. The difference between everyone's shot isn't that great. It's there's a difference obviously between the best players and, and lesser players. But the real difference in my opinion is the ability to process information under duress. Mm. That's what sets the, 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 the great players from, you know, the, the, the wins above replacement, the guys yeah. with the higher war. Yeah. Uh, are, are the guys with the better computer chips. You know, I've watched opinion. a lot of AHL hockey, and one word that I use is consistency because if you put Dallas Stars sweaters on Texas Stars players, I mean, some people would notice, but a lot of people couldn't tell, you know, because the, the American League has just become such a great league. But just yeah. the consistent guys that night after night can, can do it are the ones that, you know, get the call-ups. Um, did want to talk because in the middle of this – whole bankruptcy, tough spending times. You guys pulled off one heck of a trade um, with Tampa hours before the trade deadline and wanted to kind of get a behind the scenes acquiring Brad Richards uh, with Johan Holmquist. Always good to get a goalie there. <laughs> and you mm-hmm. got gave up a good young goaltender in Mike Smith. I remember watching Mike Smith and, um, you know, Turco was kind of teaching him, you know, how to play with the stick and good puck handling skills. So he gave up him, a very smart player, and Jeff Halpern, who's currently the assistant in Tampa, and UC Jokinen, who was a popular player, good on the shootouts, and a fourth. So it was a big deal. Gave up a fourth round pick, but Brad Richards came in in tough times and really didn't get the notoriety I think he deserved, but was a heck of a player in Dallas. Well, we weren't bankrupt at that point. Right. It was like, was it like fringe, like not being able to spend a lot of money or? No, that was still the uh, Brad Hall, Les Jackson era. That was kind of the last year before the, the, uh, the cost cutting really took effect. Okay. Um, and, you know, in that case, Brad had a, uh, I believe he had a full no trade. Um. And so, you know, it did give us some leverage in the sense that, uh, you know, that you're not their ability to to freely market him around the league was limited by by the player and, and his and his agent. Um, but uh, yeah, that was a great trade, you know. And then we weren't able to, we weren't a- able to re-sign Brad because of the bankruptcy mm-hmm. and, and where we're heading. Uh, but we did bring him in and went on a run to the conference finals that year against yeah. and lost to Detroit. Yeah. Yeah. That was a very good Detroit team. That was a tough one. In fact, he came in, we went on a bit of a run and then I think to end the season, we, 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 we actually 
had a bit of a losing streak and and dropped a couple of spots in the playoff seating. Um, but he was a great player for us. I mean, that was a good hockey team, you know. Mm-hmm. All right. And so, we had, yeah. Go ahead. Well, in 2008, we had the Sean Avery incident as well. And I just wanted to get your take being in management, you know, looking at the time, Sean Avery chirping and uh, makes all the headlines. And now all of a sudden the Dallas Stars are in national news for the wrong reasons. And take us through that situation, um, you know, and, and how you guys went about the decision, how the NHL was involved as far as the suspension. Um you know, just a just an interesting time in Dallas Stars history. Uh let me get my my memory cap on here. Uh, you know, that was the year after we went to the conference finals. That was the summer where we acquired Sean. I think he was an unrestricted free agent. My memory serves. Yeah, and the other player and, in ball was Dino Phaneuf. Yeah, and. uh you know, he's a player, obviously, that played around around the line, right? He was an agitator-type player. Absolutely. He was a skilled player. Yes. Uh, I always thought he but, was really good with the with the Kings, and I know there was a relationship with Hull from yeah. him coming up with the Red Wings. Yeah, and, and, you know, when you play around that line, sometimes you cross over it, and, you know in that case that in that season, there were probably a couple instances, not probably there were yeah. instances where he crossed over the line in, in, in a, in a, in a way that was, that wasn't acceptable. I'm not sure he was, well, no, he was suspended, but then I also vaguely remember that. Uh, yeah, it was a, Six game suspension and completing a counseling program. That's right. He was in that the 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 player um, assistance program, and that's a confidential program. So what made it tough to manage uh, is we didn't know it's totally confidential, uh, and so we really didn't know what his status was and when he would. Um, be coming out of that program. Refresh my memory if you have it in front of you, because I don't. Did we end up trading him that year? Waivers. That's right. That's right. And so, but I don't think we could put him on waivers until he cleared that program. Yes, that's correct. So, you know, speaking of, of, you know, one of the more interesting things you're managing, that, that was definitely one where you're sort of, you're trying to manage scenarios, but you have no idea on timeline. Hmm. Yeah. And, and there's also salary cap implications involved. Cause not only is there a salary cap, there's also a floor. Um, you know, you have to hit a certain amount to get to the floor. In fact, when we were bankrupt, I'm sort of jumping around, but we uh, picked up uh, Eric Nystrom. Yep. And Played really well. I, here. I believe at the time, if you picked up someone on re-entry waivers, mean meaning they were coming, they had been sent down to the minors, and they were coming from the minors 
back up to the NHL, it would be 50% of their salary. Hmm. You could claim that, that on a cap charge. We had to have them recall him and then put him back on waivers because we couldn't recall him on reentry, claim him off reentry waivers because he didn't put us at the floor. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that that was a great pickup because Nystrom came here, played well, and then you guys traded him for Matthias Yanmar or got Matthias Oh, he Yanmar played really well for us. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I say I don't recommend uh, managing a bankrupt team, but on the flip side, it was some of the best – work I've been involved with both personally and as a group because you had to try and compete with severely less resources because the mandate was not don't you know be a bad team the mandate was be as competitive as you can because we're trying to sell this team Hmm. from the creditors yeah and you know, if you remember, like we were right in the playoff mix for a couple of years there, being at the floor and being bankrupt. That is a tough time. I do you know, remember we, that. And you had to get NHL approval with every move, correct? Yeah. I remember having a conference call with some bankers out of New York at like five in the morning when we, in order to get approval for the, uh, the overage on our approved budget to bring in Jamie Langenbrunner, <laughs> the trade <laughs> deadline. <laughs> and I guess the he question was to me, the, the, you know, some banking guy, and he was asking me if I think this was going to win us the cup. I'm like, well, you know, I hope we're going to get us in the playoffs. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And, and then in, in 2010, you guys had a brutal decision where, your franchise face who in March will get a trophy at the American airlines, a well-deserved trophy right near Dirk Nowitzki, Mike Madano being traded away. Take us through that process because I mean, one thing, what you guys did with the capitals in order for the final piece to get a Vetchkin, which was a franchise changer, you're going through economic times and then you have a player, and I think, you know, Madonna would admit probably a, a bit on his downside of his career, but still an icon in town, someone that was the ambassador for hockey and DFW. Yeah, legacy players are tough, you know, because they're legacy players for a reason. They're iconic. I, I shouldn't say they're tough. They're, they're, they're challenging to... Most times, in my opinion, to manage on the downside at the end, in the twilight, whatever you want to call it, because they're icons. You know, Mike Madano deservedly is going to get a statue in front of the American Airlines Center because he was a great ambassador for hockey in the state of Texas. Who knows if the Dallas Stars are where they are today? I would argue they would not be where they are today in the sort of position they have in, in the, in the Dallas sports landscape. If Mike Madano was not part of the group that came here from Minnesota. Yeah. And so you, you want to respect the legacy, but you also have a job to do on the management side for the 
the now and the future. And sometimes with a legacy player, those start to separate, you know, and uh, the amount of discussions that we had on, on how to manage that internally um, were, there was a lot of discussions on, on, on how to, how to respect that, but how to do what we needed to do to, to also move the franchise forward, given where we were in our, you know, our financial situation, given where we were in our competitive life cycle and given where Mike was. And it was, it was, it was, it was hard. Yeah. Yeah. Mike wanted to stay. Um, I, I can't even really remember. Okay. To be honest, I'm not, did we trade him or we just didn't resign him? I thought we just didn't resign him and he, he signed with Detroit as a free agent. Well, you had to throw that question back at me. That's the thing about this interview. Frank Provenzano is throwing stuff back at me to do my, <laughs> to do my, <laughs> my, my, uh, my recollection is that we, yeah, we he was not resigned. Not. Yeah. Did not resign, which I guess is better than a trade. Yeah. Uh, and so in some ways it was a different discussion, you know, Yeah, uh, still a tough one because at the end of the day, uh, you know, the also like an iconic player like Mike on, on the sort of the, the farewell tour, like look at, you know, we we're talking about Alex Ovechkin, right. And, you know, look at sort of where the capitals are. They're trying to maintain their competitive window so that Alex is on at least a, a playoff competitive team. I don't, I, I don't think anyone would argue that Washington is, is an elite Stanley cup contending team anymore, even people in Washington, but they're trying to maintain their competitive window so that as Alex chases the record, you know, he's not doing it on a team that's also trying to get the first overall pick. And and we just financially were not in that in that situation here, and so that that wrinkle made it made it hard. Um, you know, when he finally did decide to retire a star, uh, I do remember doing the contract at nine hundred ninety nine thousand nine hundred ninety nine dollars and ninety nine cents, and registering that with the league for one day. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so that same year, and. Take us inside what it's like for the NHL draft because one of my favorite stories with you is you guys had a high first-round draft pick. I remember I was watching that draft. I remember the player that I wanted who was dropping in that draft. That player was Cam Fowler because I felt as though the Stars needed a bigger defenseman and everything I saw, he was looked amazing and dropping down and here come the stars. And I'm like, wow, we're going to have a chance at Cam Fowler. And then the stars announced their pick and it's goalie Jack Campbell. So were you at the draft or were you back and take us through was, that? Scenario. I, I was at the draft. Okay. Um, And did you guys expect Campbell? I mean, expect Fowler to drop like that? Well, typically, when you put your list together, most teams that I've been a part of 
you goalies, you know, goalies are always different, right? And a lot of times goalies get slotted in uh, to a draft. They're not necessarily part of your overall list, but you have your overall list and then your sort of your goalie list. And where do you, you know, if you have a goalie that you believe very, you think your scouts obviously think very highly of relative to other draft classes or relative to his class, um, where do you slot that goaltender and, you know, how much of a, of a differentiator is, is he, and, you know, our amateur scouts and at the time our head amateur scout was a former goaltender, uh, was, was obviously very high on Jack Campbell. And, um, so that decision was made, I believe at the, on the draft floor. And I wasn't, at that side of the table. So I don't know any of the discussions that went on, but you know, those are sometimes the decisions that you have with goaltenders is where to slot them. And they did decide to slot him in above uh, Fowler. Okay. But it was a, a spirited debate, which you have in those situations. If you go back and would you do it again? Probably not. You know, Jack ended up having a, a, a decent career in the NHL but obviously full of ups and downs. He's an athletic, you know, at the time he was a very athletic goaltender and, and athletic goaltenders in my experience can be great, but they can go into periods where they struggle because, you know, they rely on their athleticism. Rick DiPietro was a good example. Of oh, an athletic wow. Goal. Yeah. Wow. He is terrific in college. And, you know, up and down NHL career injuries ended his career. Yeah. Uh, but that is sort of the, the goalies are risky, right? And it's risk reward. And, and, you know, if you look at, that's why they don't usually go in the first round, but if you look at the current first round pick in the stars net, I think you'd do that all day, right? Yeah. 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 That turned so, out to be a good one. Yeah. You, you just, and they take longer to bake their yep. souffle instead of a pie. Yep. all right another one i wanted to talk about was james neal and matt niskanen to pittsburgh for alex goligoski uh-huh uh part of that uh was at the time also making money work i believe okay in terms of the the construction of it well i just felt uh i felt you know, I mean, real deal. Neil had a great career as as you know. Matt Niskanen went on to win a cup. Um, Goligoski at the time, I will say, coming from Pittsburgh, like he was known as a really, really good NHL defenseman. I don't think he was bad with Dallas. Um, you know, I think there were times that he was really good, and he's still in the league. So he's still in the league, and I, you know, the the thing with with uh, Goose is that. I think he was locally in terms of the local fan base, his, you know, their, their perception of him was tainted by the fact of what was given up for him. Yeah. And in retrospect, probably too steep, you know, um, but he was a guy that no matter which coaches came in, 
would play him 26 minutes a night. You know, and like you say, he's still in the league. He was a very good defenseman. And uh, and they're just harder to find defensemen like that. And, you know, like I said, in retrospect, probably should have gotten a little more back, even if it's in terms of futures in that deal. Uh, but the decision was made that that was the, the you know, he was going to fill a need for us. And he did. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah i don't really know if i'm answering your question no 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 no. that's fine i'm just throwing things out because i think stars fans kind of love pulling back the curtain and say oh what about this trade what about this um yeah i mean you know you you, the thing about trades is you you know when a trade is made it's probably been precipitated by at least two to six weeks of discussions and evaluations and various iterations. And so, you know, sometimes the final product right at that last mile, um, you've gone down the road for so long and sometimes it gets tweaked at the end. And, and sometimes those tweaks in retrospect were an overcorrection. Yeah. And, and similar to the oddity of situations like the Sean Avery where you're not expecting it. Um, We were kind of discussing before this about a defenseman, Carlos Skraskins, who is a terrific shot blocker, and he was coming off injury, but of all things, a collision in pregame skate with Matt Niskanen. Was there any behind-the-scenes kind of things that we don't know about that? Oh, my gosh. So it was in Chicago. And uh, Mark Crawford was the coach. And Joe and I happened to be both on the road that game, I believe. And so uh, Carlos, you know, who I, everyone, everyone that came in contact with Carlos Grass just loved him because he was just, you know, he was probably like a, a lineman in football where he just, all the dirty work, shot blocking, penalty killing, just a great guy. He would have a habit of the last few laps of his, you know, when everyone comes on the ice and skates around, he would turn around and skate backwards, like rip around the ice a couple times backwards. And I guess he did that. And Maddie Niskanen was skating forwards and he was skating backwards and in warm up, and nobody really saw this. They collided. Oh, and like full on, like Niski, Niski took a, a full dose of Carlos Graston's, I think, you know, the his head, back of his helmet to, I think to it, to the face or whatever. And so Joe and I are up watching the game and then we end up getting a penalty and we're looking and we're like, something doesn't look right. And we're, we only got like, one of our defensemen took a penalty. So then they're rotating and they're only rotating like three defensemen. Like, why are they shortening the bench on a, on a penalty kill? And then we're like, wait a second, you sort of count and you can always sort of tell because you sit up top when you're the away management team and you kind of look down and there's too much spacing on our bench. (laughs) Like there's too many gaps for one guy in the penalty box. And we're like, 
hold on. Like you start counting and you're like, where, where is everybody? (laughs) And, and uh, so at the intermission, you know, we sent someone downstairs and we're like, where is scratch and and Niski? And they had collided. And it was just like a, you know, our, our trainer at the time, well, it's still the trainer there, Dave Zeiss. He was getting ready to go out and all of a sudden Matt Niskanen, you know, comes walking in. I think he's, he's bleeding. <laughs> and then he's like, what happened? You know? And then Carlos Scrashton's comes walking in and he's like dazed and confused. And then it's a bit chaotic. And you know, you got to, you're trying to figure out what happened because the game hasn't even started yet. Mm. And then you gotta let the coaches know that you're down two defensemen. Wow. <laughs> you're right before the game where there's no chance to get anyone else dressed. It was, <laughs> it was a bit of a fire drill. It was the first time I had seen, two guys go down in the pregame warm-up yeah. for friendly fire. Yeah. And not really know about it. All right. 500 contracts negotiated. Uh, must have been some interesting conversations with agents and players. What's one of your favorite stories as far as a contract negotiation? Oh, boy. There were so many of them. All right. Is there any oddities that would be like, are you serious? Uh, you know, what's interesting is – Everyone, a lot of people assume that when you're doing contract negotiations, it's 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 very adversarial. <clears throat> but the truth is, you know, anyone can get one deal done, but you're dealing in an ecosystem, especially with uh, with free agency and with salary cap. A lot of it comes down to recruitment, so you have to have these relationships with with uh, agents that are, um, in some ways, collaborative, right? Because they have to trust you that you're not going to do it force a deal on them that's going to make them lose their clients so you end up having relationships with agents that maybe from a perception standpoint it's not as adversarial as you would think necessarily and so i remember i had uh one seller arbitration case and we actually went to the hearing in toronto and uh we ended up settling on you know literally on the courthouse steps and then uh, one of the agents on the other side was like, "Hey, you know, do you want to do you want to grab dinner tonight?" And I was like, "Sure." And and so he and I went out in Toronto, and then we got invited. He knew a, a friend of his. He knew a friend of his that uh, was having a party or something, and so we had nothing to do. And so we got invited to this party, and it, it just ended up being one of those nights where you're sort of going from party to party with people you don't even know. And we ended up on like this rooftop balcony at like two in the morning at a hotel overlooking the rest of Toronto. We're like, this is just the strangest night that I (laughs) thought I'd had where I didn't think it would start there this morning when we were literally fighting on the courthouse steps over, you know, $300,000 in arbitration. And then you end up two in the morning having drinks at a a hotel. It was, it was the strangest end to a contract to a salary arbitration I'd ever been a part of, for sure. There, there are a lot of people out here that negotiate their own salary. And as a person who does a lot of negotiating, any tips for them? Yeah, I, I would say, you know, as long as you're res- just, it's like anything else, listen more, speak less sometimes, and 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 really try and and hear what the other side is saying. I always tried to determine what was a want and what was a need. 
I would try and meet their needs as long as my needs were met and split the wants. Okay. That's uh that's real good. All right. So finally, quick analytic question. So I'm still a big fan of plus minus. And it's similar to like batting average in baseball where, you know, I just get tired of people batting 220 and it seems as though it's shifting. Whereas batting average now people want, well, he gets on base on base percentage is big. Um, how do you feel about plus minus time on ice? And for the people that watch stars games and want to dive into an analytic, what would you suggest as far as, wow, because like, for instance, I'm guessing Pat Maroon does not score well in the analytics department, but at the same time, why does that player go from team to team and they tend to win cups? So, you know, take us through a management perspective as far as what you always like to and what you continue to, um, what you enjoy for analytics, what you follow, and, you know, how do you toe that line between good room guy, quality analytics? Yeah, you know, I, I always thought plus minus, uh, you know, was instructive at the, you know, sort of one or two standard deviations from the mean, you know, at, at, at the ends, at the extremes, plus or minus, plus minus would tell you this guy is pretty bad or pretty good. It was less instructive in the middle, in the mushy middle. And I think that's the case in a flow game like hockey in a flow game, like, uh, you know, in a flow game like hockey or even football, where a lot of the value is spatial, where is someone who doesn't have the football? Where is someone who doesn't have the puck relative to a, a situation? It's a little more nuanced. And so I think, you know, the truth is now there's so much more data available, even in the last two years, especially internally to teams than there ever was uh, back when I was doing it. And there are that, and there's much more information now available to fans, but they're just getting kind of the tip of the iceberg. But you know, there is value in someone's being, uh, you know, the, the old school words, he's a glue guy, good yeah. guy in the room. The pitfall for that is you over you overpay for it sometimes and overvalue it. But the value is real. It's not, it's not, it's, you know, it's not zero. And it just has to fit in what you're doing. And, and at the end of the day, I think, you know, if you're going to sort of focus on on stats, they do have the the, the play driving stats. You know, expected uh, expected goals and stuff like that, which I think are they have value. But you also have to look at keep in mind the situations that that player is playing in, because not all situations are created equal, and, and coaching staffs are rational. And they're trying to put, you know, some of the players they're putting in tougher situations than others. You know, you're going to put your, you're going to put your best troops in the toughest warfare, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and so that's the eye test for me when you're looking at these, a lot of these stats, which can also become noise is, is just keep in mind the context that, that these numbers are being generated in is this, 
is this player playing, you know, is he being trotted out there for offensive zone faceoffs way more than defensive zone faceoffs, for example, where, you know, where, at, at what point in the game is he out there? Is he out there against the team's top line or is he being sheltered against the team's third line? That has a, a lot to do with your numbers as well in terms of context. I know one of your big things in life was to capture a cup. Does it still enter your mind at all? I know you're past the hockey days and you're very successful in what you're doing now. Tell us what you're doing. I mean, now. that's my regret. Yeah. But I did 17 years and never got my name on it. Yeah. And, you know, do you spend another 10, you know, right at a point, the, the desire, uh, to get my name on that thing. Is it a regret? A hundred percent. I would love to have, to have my name etched on the Stanley cup. The closest I've come is, is when Washington won, they invited me to their Stanley cup party. And then when Tampa won Jeff Halpern, who's still a friend, in fact, you know, I have a, I'm still have a toe in the hockey world because I am part of a group that represents NHL coaches. And, uh, you know, closest I got to the cup was just having a few pictures holding it. And yeah. at this point, that's what it's going to be. And that that's good enough. And and now I just root for people that I have relationships with to get their names on it. You know, when, when George won it last summer, I, it felt to me almost like I won it. Sure. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. And yeah. I'd love for the stars, you know, to win it this year because there's still a lot of people there that, that I care about quite yeah. frankly. Yeah. Well, my friend, I know you're busy, but I'd love to grab a couple of toonies and head down to Tim Hortons and grab a uh, brew. What do you think? We're getting a Tim Hortons in Dallas. I think so. I think no. I saw, I think we're getting a Tim Hortons. I, I, I swear I, somebody texted that to me. Wow. Just to, Wow. You know, we'll have to do these podcasts at Tim Hortons. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. I'm jealous when I watch hockey night in Canada and I see those commercials. That's uh, that's pretty unbelievable. You know, that's what I love about hockey is the randomness too. When, when I was down in Houston, there was a pub in downtown Houston of all places called the Maple Leaf pub and it had a Uh penalty box in it and they played hockey night in Canada and every beer on tap was Canadian. Yeah. In the middle of Houston, Texas. And I used to just go there and I was like, wow, this is, I mean, I felt at home and you know, they'd have arrows watch parties when the arrows were in town. And I was like, boy, that's so random. So to get a Tim Hortons, you know, I mean, I know we got Moxie's now. Yeah. So we're getting a little Canada down here. And you got uh, Maple Leaf Diner up, up my way. Oh yeah, that's right. Is that where you get your poutine? Yeah, it absolutely is. Is it really? Yeah, oh. I go there for breakfast uh, on occasion and uh, sub in uh, fries with, with gravy and cheese curd. <laughs> well, my friend, your dad will be proud. And uh, yeah. I will call you Dr. Frank from now on. So, <laughs> And uh, thank you for taking the time. I know Spits and Suds fans really appreciate this. Thank you for your honest and open conversation because – there are so many stories from the stars past that I think, and that's what I love about having Craig on the pod is I wonder what happened. And now we have the forum to get the answers. So truly, truly appreciate uh, you taking the time and uh, look forward to uh, catching up with you again soon, my friend. Yeah, let's do it again. Yeah, absolutely. 
Frank Provenzano on a Spits and Suds one-timer. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We truly appreciate your support, and we'll be back with another Spits and Suds episode soon.